Thousands of Canadians have been displaced this spring due to wildfires and as per the usual, the left is using other people's tragedies to push their own progressive agenda. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed and you're watching The Gun Show. I came to Ottawa this morning from my home province of Nova Scotia, where our communities are literally on fire. Thousands upon thousands of families have been displaced from their homes. Hundreds are watching as their homes may be turned into ashes. Eight months ago, Hurricane Fiona damaged our communities beyond measure, displacing not just homes, but sweeping people out to sea in some instances. Mr. Speaker, the Conservatives are peddling policies that they know will increase the level of pollution that is causing these severe weather events. We have one planet, Mr. Speaker. It is my home. It is yours. I will not stand idly by and watch it burn. That clip you saw right there is Sean Fraser, the Minister of Immigration and Citizenship in Canada, for some reason, pinning, attributing the forest fires in his home province of Nova Scotia to climate change. Now, I don't think he realizes the irony of his statement there that while he was leaving on his weekly commute from Nova Scotia to Ottawa on a plane, he saw some fires and he thought, that's it, it's climate change. Now, if Sean Fraser really thought that the fires were caused by climate change, he himself would probably reduce his carbon footprint and find, I don't know, a less carbon intensive job, one where he doesn't have to commute via airplane from the East Coast to the central part of the country in Ottawa. He doesn't believe that his carbon emissions are causing climate change. He just believes that your carbon emissions are causing climate change. It's not his commute. It's your commute, don't you see, that's causing the fires. And therefore, you must pay more for everything. Now, that's obvious madness, right? And it's unscientific. I think we all realize that fire is part of the natural regenerative state of the forest. And then there are other factors involved, like cyclical weather patterns. Now, I had to call in a bit of an expert here, or at least someone who has really drilled down on the data here, to offer a more common sense explanation than your SUV caused the forest fires. And so I called Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science. We are living through wildfire season here in Alberta. We did have tens of thousands of Albertans displaced. And Michelle is so great at calming people's fears by introducing some facts into an overheated conversation. So joining me now in an interview we recorded last week before the Alberta election is my friend Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science. So joining me now is good friend of the show and good friend of reality, <laughs> Michelle Sterling from Friends of Science. And one of the things that has really been affecting not just Alberta, but because of the smoke plume, most of uh, the western part of the country, the wildfires here in Alberta. And 
As I said to Michelle before we started recording, it's an evergreen accusation that the wildfires that happen every year during what's known as wildfire season are somehow induced by climate change. But historically, that just isn't the case. And um, that's why I wanted to have Michelle on the show. Well, for a bunch of different reasons. But uh, Michelle has done some wonderful work um, this year. But every year that spring weather catastrophes happen, uh, there's Michelle with your daily dose of reality. Michelle, thanks for coming on the show. Um, why don't you explain to us a little bit about wildfire season? Because it happens in May, but even sooner, right? Well, you see, um, anyway, first, thanks for having me on the show. But you see, people don't realize that between snow melt and spring rain, there's a gap that varies every year in April, May. And that gap uh, depends on how dry it is. And we've had three years of La Nina, so the, the prairies are very, very dry. We had a big gap this year with almost no rain in April almost no rain. So, um, you know, and they used to say April showers bring May flowers. Well, they brought a big wildfire. And we also have in Western Canada about 18 million hectares of standing deadwood from the mountain pine beetle infestation. So uh, there's a map from uh, Natural Resources Canada showing the scope of that. And a lot of it is in Alberta, exactly where those wildfires were. That map is from 2012. So I imagine those trees have been standing there dead for a decade, right? They're just tinder. So you just throw a little spark in there and that that spark can come from anything. You know, there are some accusations and charges related to arson, but, you know, a farmer out welding in, you know, trying to fix a, a piece of equipment and that spark can go haywire. Um, somebody inadvertently, you know, negligently tosses a cigarette butt. Somebody with a campfire, if they're not experienced campers, you know, negligent at that point those sparks can fly and away we go, you know, an ATV, spark from an ATV. So, um, you know, it's, it's not climate change. Every big fire in Alberta uh, going back 100 years has been in May. These are all the biggest fires, uh, Fort Mac, Slave Lake, the Chichanga firestorm, which was so big that the smoke pall actually was seen around the world. And that smoke pall went up so high in the atmosphere that people didn't smell the smoke. They just saw that the sun turned blue at midday. It became dark in Toronto. People were driving with their headlights on. Power consumption went up. That's how dark it was. People thought nuclear war had happened or the apocalypse had come. But that's not the case. 1919, La burned down completely, wiped out the logging industry. It took out so many trees. Uh, 1910, huge wildfires all along the um, the uh, Rocky Mountain Corridor there down by Calgary. When we only had 150,000 people in Alberta, we'd only been a province for five years. So, um, you know... Uh, this attribution of climate change, the big problem with it is that people will go and do stupid things like build a wind farm to stop wildfires when wind farms actually raise the regional temperature and it doesn't stop a wildfire. We need people in the woods clearing out that fuel load and we need to pay for that. We need to pay for fire breaks around some of these cities and communities, you know, actually cutting down trees, <gasps> gasp, you know, to, to create 
a fire break in advance of these known things. Wildfires are like snowstorms. They happen every year. But we act surprised every year, like, oh my God, it's a wildfire. Yes, this is Mother Nature renewing the forest. So wake up, use fire smart tips, and take care of your community and your property. Uh, and we've seen accusations from the other side of, you know, like the climate change fear mongers that the Wildfire season is happening earlier and earlier every single year, but that's not the case at all. It has always been May. And as you said in one of your videos, um, in response to the Slave Lake fire, they, they actually said, look, we should be generally ready for wildfire season by the end of April. We should have everybody on the ground. And, th and, that should, and they decided that based on historical data. Right. A April 15th, actually, was what they concluded. And uh, Slave Lake Fire, by the way, was arson, but it was a massive destruction of that community. Um, but, um, you know, until they did that study, I think that a lot of politicians and the public in general had thought, well, you know, wildfire season starts in August. So we've got until June to be ready. And that study showed that, no, it starts very early, be ready by at least April 15th. Um, and then, you know, you're good to go um, because uh, and you can see in the fire risk maps from uh, the Canadian interagency fire service you can see the um, the fire risk uh, you know there's almost nothing toward the end of April and suddenly there's a huge red patch all across the prairies and then now if you look at it today you'll see there's just a few blotches of red patches a couple of blotches of yellow and everything else is blue and green like it's just completely calmed down after the rain now that's another oh. thing I, I i went back on the friends of science uh youtube page and it is either michelle explaining why uh fires are not climate change in may or Michelle explaining why floods are also not climate change in May. Uh, why don't you touch a little bit on that? Because parts of the province did get hammered by rain. I didn't get any rain, unfortunately. But um, what a blessing for these northern communities, particularly in the Grand Prairie area, where they've just been plagued by fire to get this rain. But then people were saying, oh, they're going to get flash floods. And that's also climate change. So... Explain to us why flooding is a regular occurrence in Alberta in May. Well, a flooding, well, a lot of flooding also happens in, in June as the snowpack melts. But, um, it, you know, these are caused by different kinds of atmospheric um, patterns that uh, really have nothing to do with human-caused climate change. They are related to natural climate factors. They're related to El Nino and La Nina cycles. They're related to things like, uh, you know, when there's a lot of aerosols in the air, like we've had a number of big volcanic eruptions in um, Russia. I think it's the Shuvalich and a few others, big ones in the world. You know, so when you get all that aerosol in the air, then that is something that um, water droplets, water vapor can form onto creating rain. Uh, same with uh, wildfires. They also create um, climate change, right? So, uh, uh, you know, there's lots of images of the pyrocumulonimbus clouds caused by the wildfires that go up 
tremendously high and they have an enormous, enormous energy release, far, far more than Hiroshima. So uh, these are factors that people you know, are generally not aware of. If you look at our burning questions report that was about coal versus wildfire emissions, you can see more of that information there. Yeah, and that's another thing. So, you know, the province moves away from coal because of particulate, but every year <laughs> there's wildfire particulate and there are um, uh, pollen particulate that's far worse mm -hmm. than anything the coal has ever done. I think that's something that people don't realize. Pollen particulate, farming particulate, although I shouldn't give these people any ideas, about, <laughs> you know, dust and pollen um, because they would, you know, further attack agriculture but far worse than anything coal has ever done in this province. Yeah, that's right. I, I think in the year that we did uh, that report, we used the 2011 stats and uh, um, uh, wildfires put out a thousand times the PM 2.5 of coal. So, um, you know, and unfortunately, speaking of coal, now that we have pretty much phased out coal, you know, we are actually very reliant on Saskatchewan, our neighbor and their coal plants. And um, Minister Gilbo simply threatened uh, Premier Scott Moe with uh, criminal charges if they don't shut down their coal plants. If they do shut down their coal plants, Alberta will be in blackout. And it's really putting us at an energy security risk here because we used to have about 40% coal, 40% natural gas. And you have to understand, like, coal is a static substance. You can actually store a year's supply of coal at your power plant. But you can't do that with natural gas because it's a pressurized system. So if some idiot decides to take out the natural gas pipelines or if market prices skyrocket as they have been doing, especially in Europe over the past uh, year and a half, um, you know, that's catastrophic. And we don't have that backup of coal that we used to have. So it's entirely stupid. The uh, pool price has tripled since the, um, the phase-out coal policy came in. And of course, the people who were most advocating for coal phase-out were the medical unions and Dr. Vipond in particular of the CAPE organization. And what does medicine run on? It runs on affordable, reliable electricity of all the people who should have been demanding that we maintain a reliable and affordable supply of power. It should have been the health unions. And instead, they were shooting themselves and all of Alberta's coal workers in the foot. And, you know, uh, if Saskatchewan is forced to shut down their coal plants, What's Alberta going to do? Are we just going to go into blackout or are we going to buy from Wyoming <laughs> where they create electricity with coal? So, I mean, there is only one completely reliable source of electricity on the grid um, that I, I think is even more reliable than natural gas, because as you say, you cannot store natural gas on site. It's coal. If we can't get it from Saskatchewan, even though we have 800 years of it under our feet here in Alberta, we're going to get it from Wyoming. We're going to get it from Montana. Heck, we might even get it from BC. Well, we hope we might get it from 
Montana. But, you know, if you look at recent reports about grid reliability in the States, um, they're getting near the breaking point as well. So they may not be able to supply us, you know, because these uh, interconnection arrangements are for excess power that's available from various provinces. And you'll see sometimes in winter, um, you know, there's there's no spare power from Saskatchewan. And even even Quebec runs into that in winter. Parker Gallant has followed that case very closely and many times in winter, despite the huge hydro output in Quebec from the James Bay Dam, they're propping up their system with natural gas power from Ontario in the middle of winter. They don't have the capacity anymore. And yet we're supposed to believe that we can go all EV, that we can decarbonize the entire country and flip entirely to electricity instead of fossil fuels. I mean, we've got a report called um, Clean Electricity um, Reality versus Delusion, I think it's called. And it shows people the charts, like wind and solar are presently like not even visible on the graph of our uh, total energy consumption. And we're supposed to believe that we can wipe out everything else on that and suddenly flip overnight to wind and solar? No, it's impossible. Not only do we not have the grid capacity, but we don't have the access to the rare earth minerals that we would require to go completely green, even though I can't think of anything further from green than cobalt mining uh, by child slaves. Um, however, I, I mean, it, it, most of this um, rare earth minerals required for batteries and green energy, it's either in China or controlled by China on the African continent. That's right. Yeah, it's um, actually the G7 were just uh, yapping about, um, you know, China bullying them and there were going to be repercussions. And actually, they're just sleepwalking into disaster because China has a stated public policy that there will be a made in China policy 2025. So in two years, everything of high tech and clean tech in the world, high tech aerospace, everything they want to have produced in China and they mean it. So, you know, there, uh, I believe that the deindustrialization that we see going on in Europe and in Canada and the US, I think that that's a strategic plan, part of the plan of China and our useful idiots in government are completely sleepwalking into it and going, oh, yes, we're going green, we're going net zero. You know, just a reminder, net zero 2050 is one year after China's plan to dominate the world in 2049. And I'm not telling you conspiracy theories. This is published in Bloomberg. So um, this is their plan, you know, and they're telling the world this is our plan. And everyone goes, oh, but you don't mean it. And that's bullying. And we're not going to stand for it. And yet we comply on the climate side. In fact, Robert Robert Lyman just issued a report uh, called The Climate Pawn, Canada, The Climate Pawn. We just posted it on the blog yesterday. And, you know, we keep being told by people like Minister O'Regan that, you know, Canada, people look to Canada for an example. Well, no, they don't. <laughs> you know, we're leading a parade with no followers. We're destroying our own economy. And every uh, climate policy benefits only one country, China. So we better wake up, you know, because we're actually just um, laying down on the altar and saying, please sacrifice our country, our ourselves and our children and our future so that we can pretend to do some virtue signaling while you guys take over the world. And 
you know what? China's very smart. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're smart. They're open about it. And we're just letting it happen. It's, uh, it's phenomenal. It's unbelievable. Well, and like China is telling us they do this sort of stuff. I mean, it is um, China routinely describes what they're doing as a hundred year plan. <laughs> I think they're pretty well on target, aren't they? They are. Yeah, that's 2049. That'll be their 100-year anniversary of the of the Communist Party. And, you know, also historically, China has always had the view that they are the middle kingdom, you know, that there's heaven, the middle kingdom, and then all of the rest of the infidels. So, you know, it's a real worldview that's very different than ours. Um, uh, and the other thing you have to recognize, too, is... Uh, <laughs> China was under uh, was going to be under investigation by the UN, Canada, and a few other partner countries like the UK and such like uh, were asking the UN to investigate China for the crime of genocide against the Uyghur people. Now, coincident to that, came out the reports from the Kamloops Indian Residential School that 215 alleged graves had been found there which caused a huge furor across the country. And of course, dozens of other uh, First Nations groups uh, also said, oh, look, we found some too. So China flipped that at the UN and has accused Canada of genocide. And we're being investigated for genocide. Now, that happened in the spring of 2022. In the fall of 2022, October 27th, the entire House of Commons voted to declare residential schools to describe them as a genocide. Now, the UN Special Rapporteur on Indigenous People was just here in March for 10 days. And when he left, his interim report said, this is an appalling legacy. So what do you think his um, report is going to say in the fall? Now, you have to realize also that the UN, in terms of climate change, they just issued a summary for policymakers in March. Uh, they kind of rushed through this summary for policymakers. They didn't even issue the final synthesis report, but it's all catastrophic. Um, and there was a very graphic image that was in almost all the newspapers of, you know, fairly nice weather up to here or fairly nice climate up to here. And then, boom, we're going to have red, horrible, burning climate and our children will fry. Anyway, this report was subsequently submitted to um, the UN's um, International Court of Justice for an opinion on climate compliance. So they're trying to criminalize climate dissent. And just imagine what that means, because you see, in 2015, um, the uh, wealthy nations bribed the developing nations to come on to the um, Paris Agreement, promising them $100 billion a year Green Climate Fund, and excuse me, this was to come from uh, only from Western nations. And there were not to be any requirements for performance or accountability. The money was just going to be doled out. Well, they never, ever put that fund together. In 2019, both China and India went to the UN um, Climate Fest in the uh, fall of September 2019 with basically a demand note saying pay up. We want this money. 
And now at COP27 of last fall, um, there was a motion to provide loss and damages to countries for climate damage allegedly caused by the West. So just imagine if at the UN International Court of Justice that there's a ruling that climate compliance should be mandatory and that there are certain kinds of, I don't know, punishments to countries or repercussions to countries that have not paid Think about how much money that is and think about what that could mean for our economy and our world. Uh, we're talking about now climate gulags, right? People like you and I who dissent on climate change, you know, may have to face trials, actual trials for ecocide, right? Canada may have to face a trial for actual genocide, not cultural genocide, actual genocide. And people say, oh, you know, you're just making things up. You're, you know, getting carried away. Well, look at the world. Who's in charge right now? It's the BRICS nation. The U.S. is not the dominant power anymore. We are not under the protection of their wing. And, um, you know, based on a lot of material coming out of the U.S., actually, we are deeply in, in, um, infiltrated by China. So they're working our country to their own ends, and we're blind to it, or willfully blind, as Sam Cooper wrote in his book. I was just, as you were talking there, I thought, you know what, has the UN ever used the phrase climate genocide? And they have. As recently as 2018 is sort of when it came into the parlance. I did a quick Google search. It came from those... Um, uh, I don't want to call them useful idiots, but they just might be the Marshall Islands. Every time the, uh. the UN needs uh, some excuse to impose some sort of major wealth transfer, they love to point to the Marshall Islands and say, these guys are going to be underwater and it's your fault, Sheila, your, your Jeep did this. Um, and you, know, you mentioned the climate gulags. David Suzuki has openly mused about locking up climate critics like Stephen Harper. Um, mm -hmm. he said they, they should face time in jail for the crime of yep. disagreeing with his worldview on climate change. So it's, it's not outlandish. This is how they think in polite left-wing environmentalist society. This is how they talk about us over there. Right. And, you know, you should uh, have a look at this book by uh, Colonel Newsham. Um, when China attacks a warning to America, because he's talking in here about the critical importance of those little tiny islands, uh, because, uh, you know, the U.S. strength is actually in its Navy. Uh, so uh, the naval strength in, in the Asian um, theater is really all those tiny islands where the U.S. has a lot of bases. But according to even Wikipedia, China has been making incursions into places like Vanuatu. They've been, you know, building all kinds of, um, um, these are the sinking islands. They're building them all kinds of airfields, right, and airports. Uh, but, but airfields and airports have dual use, don't they? You know, and it's interesting that West Coast environmental law from Vancouver has been working closely with the Vanuatu equivalent for many years. Uh, we have that in our report, Manufacturing and Climate Crisis. So, um, and another item on uh, of interest on Wikipedia related to um, the 
Canadian steamship line running out of Vanuatu on their flag of convenience. Now, that's, you know, that's just from Wikipedia, so it may not be verified, but uh, most of these little islands that claim they're sinking, they're drowning, and sea level rise and climate change from the West is causing it, most of them have um, second and third tier uh, marine registries where all of these huge boats from around the world fly with flags of convenience registered in these tiny islands. And marine emissions are like the most polluting ever. You just don't see them because they're out of sea. <laughs> but they're using, you know, the dregs of the diesel. That's what bunker oil is. So, I mean, in one sense, it's a good use for the bunker oil, but they could probably put filters on those ships. But how, hypocr uh, how hypocritical to claim, oh, we're drowning and, and dying because of you guys. And, oh, by the way, here's your flag of convenience. You can fly that, that uh, smelly old uh, cargo ship anywhere you want. <laughs> now, I, I just wanted to ask you, uh, before I let you go, about the attacks on free speech uh, related to climate change for people who uh, regularly poke around on your YouTube channel, like I do, um, you, you get slapped with a climate change warning as though you were a cigarette package over there. Yeah. But you know, you get the little YouTube UN warning, you're demonetized, you cannot ever be monetized on YouTube, because you're no. a climate skeptic organization. I wouldn't even call you climate skeptics. I just think that uh, realist from the outside looking in the the view of friends of science is that maybe it has something to do with that big burning ball of gas in the sky <laughs> more yeah. than your car um, and um, you know uh, going back to David Suzuki that wants to lock up climate skeptics um, but just tell us uh, we've talked about it on the show before but just so people understand what can happen to you if you simply have a dissenting view from the government narrative on climate change? Um, well, you know, in 2015, EcoJustice went after us via the Competition Bureau. They wanted us fined and thrown in jail for our billboards. Uh, you know, and our billboards had scientific messages on it. Uh, more recently, Fault Lines has come out, which is a report that CBC covered quite extensively. And we did a deconstruction of their coverage um, where, of course, they're trying to uh, set the stage to say, well, any anything that, uh, you know, is holds a dissenting view or anyone holding a dissenting view should be labeled disinformation, misinformation and should be blocked from the airways. That's what a lot of all these censorship things are about, um, you know, and in that. Uh, fault lines report friends of science was the only party singled out <laughs> in the climate skeptic world and john robson over at climate <laughs> nexus was really disappointed that they weren't mentioned but uh, you know and one of their criticisms was that they they um uh couldn't find clear evidence of our sources of funding and so they assumed, based on previous works, that we are funded by fossil fuels. You know, we operate on $150,000 a year. This organization that published that report has gotten something like $55 million in government funding. Um, and uh, and they can't Google our account, our, our online website and blog, and find our AGM listings, which show our funding and the sources. So, you know, it's really a, a joke. It's a travesty. And yet this is funded by government um, and intended to intimidate and threaten 
ordinary people who stand for freedom of speech and scientific inquiry. And it's also nearly impossible for you to get your message out on social media, although Twitter is much better now. Uh, but I think it, it was at one point that you were blocked from buying ads on Facebook. Um, for yeah, we still are. Because, well, you uh, take a skeptical viewpoint. Yeah, you still are. Go ahead. Yeah, we still can't uh, buy ads on Facebook or I don't know if we can buy ads on Twitter. We haven't tried in a while, but we were blocked from that as well. And um, Facebook regularly blocks my video where all I did was read the press release from Clintel of 2019, wherein 500 scientists uh, said there's no climate emergency. Well, Facebook will not let anybody post that video on Facebook anymore. Uh, and now, fortunately, Clintel has grown to more than 1,500 scientists and scholars, and they all continue to say there's no climate emergency. So that information should be front and center for everyone and not blocked, and we should have open public debate about it. Yeah, I, I guess that would be great. Unfortunately, the social media giants won't let us have that. Michelle, you are up against the deep pockets of foreign funded um, environmentalist organizations, but not only are they foreign funded, they're domestically funded so often by the government um, and they are doing their best to shut you up. So tell us how people can support the work that Friends of Science does um, to just bring a little bit of balance to this conversation that is dominated by a bunch of people who just want you to shut up. Well, thank you. First of all, everyone can share our material because that doesn't cost any money. People who want to help us can donate by just sending an e-transfer to contact at friendsofscience.org. You can also go online if you want to make a recurring donation. You can also call our office if you don't want to use your card online. Um, you can join us and become a member. Then you'll get our newsletters, which do roundups of climate and policy news that you probably won't see in the mainstream. And... Um, you know, you can come to our event. We've got one slated for the fall. There'll be more news on that, but uh, that promises to be um, a nice in-person event like we used to have. And, um, you know, just uh, get on our Twitter thread, get on to Facebook. We're on, uh, Rum uh, we're on uh, YouTube. We have a blog. Um, you can see us on LinkedIn. So, you know, interact with us, engage with us, and uh, let's talk about it. I mean, I know a lot of people are afraid of climate change, and they're stricken with fear and concern. We offer people what I call climate hope, because once you see the context of climate over the historical period, you realize that, uh, yes, humans probably are having some impact but it's not catastrophic and that we should adapt. We should learn how to do things like address the fuel load before the wildfire rather than putting up wind and solar farms and claiming, oh, we saved the planet. <laughs> so when we actually finance China to dominate the world. Anyway. Well, Michelle, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And I, I want to thank you for your um, rational facts um, when the other side of this debate is so hyperbolic um, and so driven with their agenda and their fear mongering. And, and this 
bizarre desire to control the actions of other people um, and to bend other people towards their will. Uh, I, I'm just so happy that Friends of Science supports free, open civil debate, free speech, and letting people live their lives without this impending doom of a an apocalypse just around the corner. It's uh, it's a real relief, I think, for a lot of people. Thank you, Sheila. And thanks for all the work you guys do at Rebel. Well, we've come to the portion of the show where I invite your viewer feedback. Every single week, I take questions, comments, story ideas, sometimes even criticisms <laughs> from the public. Right now, it's the reason I give out my email address. It's Sheila at rebelnews.com. Put gun show letters in the subject line so I know that you're sending me this email in direct relation to the show that you've watched. And who knows, I might just read it on air. But I also go poking around on some of the platforms where we post the free version of the show on YouTube or Rumble to see what people are talking about. And that's where I get this week's question, comment, story idea, viewer feedback from. It's actually from the YouTube comment section last week. First one from Jeff Nagy, who says to me, I think you underestimate how much Eastern Canada despises Alberta. Now, this is, I should have clarified this before I started talking. This is on my show with Josh Andrus from Project Confederation. And we were talking about affordability and how a vote for the NDP in Alberta would be a vote for increased costs on literally everything because of the NDP coalition with Trudeau and Rachel Notley's past history of doing absolutely nothing every time Trudeau did terrible, terrible things to Alberta, like blocking our energy, um, increasing carbon taxes, all those fun things. So we were discussing that last week and um, it sort of came up that, you know, our premier, Daniel Smith, one of her first things that she did upon uh, being elected to lead the United Conservative Party was uh, pick an open fight with Justin Trudeau <laughs> on matters of, well, basically everything. Any time that Justin Trudeau is going to put his grubby hands into provincial jurisdiction, our government here in Alberta is legally obligated to fight back through the Sovereignty Act. And uh, Jeff says, as, as I read earlier, I think you underestimate just how much Eastern Canada despises Alberta. I actually don't think Eastern Canada despises us. I actually think they don't care about us. I don't think they think about us as much as we think about them. Seems kind of pathetic when you say it that way. But it's because we have this unfair treatment within confederation that we look at the other provinces and say, don't you understand how bad we're getting screwed here? Don't you understand how much we contribute and how little we get back? And don't you understand how much we want to contribute if you would just get out of our way and let us do what we do best? I don't think they worry about us at all. I, I I really think that they don't care. And I've heard this from a lot of people because there are so many people moving to Alberta now um, for, you know, economic opportunity, issues of housing affordability, jobs, freedom. There are a lot of people from other places in Alberta and I speak to them and they say 
you know, we, we know that you're different in Alberta and we know you're kind of squawky sometimes, but I didn't realize how bad it was for you till I got here and became one of you. My friend Kian Simone, our chief documentary filmmaker, he had this exact experience. And it's one of the inspirations for his documentary, Ungovernable, about the history of Western separation and Western autonomy and where that started and how it's going here in Alberta. And if you are a subscriber to our paywall content, if you're watching this early and ad free behind the paywall, then you are. You can go catch that documentary on the paywall. And if you're not, might I invite you to? <laughs> because it, it's really great. Kian looked at this through uh, a baby Albertan lens. It was kind of fascinating for me to watch him sort of grow as an Albertan as he made the documentary. Um, Freedom Barbie says, I haven't talked to one person that was voting in NDP. And I've talked to a lot of people lately, not one. That may be true. Um, perhaps you don't live in an NDP stronghold like Edmonton. Um, because if you live outside of Edmonton, we're pretty deep blue out here. And so it would be difficult to find an NDP voter in your circle of friends, probably. You know, Freedom Barbie, it sounds like you're pretty conservative as it is. And outside of the cities, I think people are kind of ashamed <laughs> to admit that they would vote for Rachel Notley. I mean, they should be. <clears throat> Overlord says the NDP YouTube channel has the comment section disabled. They obviously had more negative comments than positive. Well, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> and uh, that's one of the reasons we leave our comment section open. And I give you my email is because uh, I, I want to know what you think. And the NDP obviously doesn't. And I think, thankfully, they did not form government which means that Alberta remains freer than anywhere else. And uh, Rachel Notley is going to have to figure out other ways to block journalists from doing their jobs because she can't use the hammer of government to do it. And Lara M says the NDP already has a proven disaster record in Alberta years earlier. Yes, also true. Uh, I documented uh, the... Radicals within the NDP in my book, The Destroyers, it's available on Amazon. And then I documented how the destroyers went about destroying things um, in my book, Stop Notley, also available on Amazon. And, you know, on our election night coverage, I think it was Lauren Gunter, Sun columnist who joined us, who did say the NDP should have had a harder go of it from the UCP, as in the UCP should have been hammering the NDP on their track record of credit downgrades, capital flight, uh, corporate head offices leaving, outward migration from Alberta, which is completely unheard of in my lifetime, outward migration from the province, um, Rachel Notley's failure to improve healthcare wait times, her failure to uh, actually get any major energy projects done without the feds getting involved and buying a pipeline that was ready to be built in the private sector. Like, give me a break. Um, they, they really should have been hammering her on those issues, her attacks on agriculture, small businesses, her tax hikes, the carbon tax she never campaigned on. 
there's a whole host of things. I, as I said, <laughs> I wrote a book about it. Um, but they really didn't. And they could have and they probably should have. They should have said, we are just recovering now. Four years after unelecting the NDP, that's how long it has taken for us to even get back to boom country. And uh, if the NDP were given another four years in power, I don't think we would ever recover. Well, everybody, that's the show for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see everybody back here in the same time, in the same place next week. And as always, remember, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think. <laughs>